Would you take your Bibles for this morning's Bible study and turn with me to the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms. Now, right away, some of you are going to panic who had been in the Sunday school class that's dealing with Psalms. And you're going to think, are we going to overlap? Actually not. I'm doing what the teacher's doing next week. So I get to jump on them. Those of you who are in the parenting class, yeah, we're going over the same passage that you did this morning. And the reason being is we've been doing a series that's been talking about different areas of our life that we struggle with, that we, some of us more than others in areas like getting control on our anger or becoming content or the idea of priorities and keeping them or forgiving others, getting along with others, uh, taking and, and handling discouragement and trials the right way. We've talked about making sure of your salvation in the evening last couple of weeks, and tonight we're talking again how to be sure in that sense that Jesus, when he saved you and forgave you, it's forever and ever. I wanted to take just a couple of weeks, probably two or three weeks, and talk about an area that all of us are involved in. Anybody who is in a family, I want to be speaking to you in the next couple of weeks. Now, some of it may not apply this week, but it will apply over the next couple, two, three weeks as we go through this mini-series of gripping, getting a grip on family life. Whether you are married or single, whether you are parenting or don't have any children, whether you're grandparenting or wherever you are in life, we're going to be talking to you in some way, shape, or form, giving you some ideas from Scripture. And to keep it very simple, what I want to just define over the next couple of weeks is three major truths. The major truth that I want to talk about this morning is this. God needs to be a welcomed partner in your life in order for you to have a strong home. A home that's blessed. A home that has joy in it. A home that He can bless. You need to make sure He's a partner in your life, wherever you are at in that family unit. And so I want to start with the text, Psalm chapter 127. And as we go to that text, I want to just give you a little bit of background. It's written by Solomon. And most of you are familiar with this man. He's the son of David. He grew up in a large family. He has his own family is with hundreds of wives, which wasn't to his benefit. But he grew up in a dysfunctional home. So he can speak from past experiences and present experiences what not to do, the mistakes to avoid. He served as Israel's king for 40 years, and that was during the golden years of Israel. And God blessed him abundantly by making him to become the wisest man of all time next to Jesus Christ. And so in his wisdom, looking back as as he writes this portion of Psalms, he's looking back, as most assume he's the author, and he's reflecting, like he did in the book of Ecclesiastes, what has he learned over his life? He's had highs, he's had lows. He's met the, you know, the mountain peak of success. And then he writes in the book of Ecclesiastes about his summary of all of that. And as he ends up the book of Ecclesiastes, which is part of these psalms, these songs that are given in a poetic part of the book, he says that everything basically in this earth, without God, it's vain. It's just, you know, God has to be the centerpiece And he does that again here in Psalm 127. In Psalm 127, he's picking up that same theme where he mentions vain or vanity several times in this text. And he's going through and he's saying, hey, listen, so many things that we focus on can easily become worthless. Let me read the psalm and then we'll see what he mentions. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. 
Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman wakes but in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows. For so he gives his beloved sleep. Lo, children are a heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children in the hands of a young man. Happy is the man that has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with the enemies in the gate. And from this passage, he is basically saying, and I think this is the summary statement of Psalm 127, without God, much of what we focus on is empty. It's vain. Whether it be something as good as family or as great as kingdoms and nation building and having a country that we can be proud of or having kids that we can be proud of. He is saying without the Lord, it's going to be really, really hard, number one. And it's, it's going to end up possibly, you're going to end up with just an emptiness. If, if we can just dissect it. He starts off and he says that those who labor to build the house, he's making a clear statement. Family life is hard. It is difficult to do the family thing. And he says, your labor that you're giving all this hard work, he says, that hard work can end up empty without the Lord. Now, some people immediately respond and say, well, therefore, I'm not going to work hard. That's not what he's getting at. He isn't saying, okay, don't work hard at all. He's, but he's making this statement. He's saying, if you are relying totally upon your hard work to make your family successful, to just make your, your home to be joy-filled because of things, it, it's going to end up empty. It's not going to be what you think it is. In fact, guarding a city is his other illustration. A city like Jerusalem that was wonderful and beautiful. He says, we can have all the guards we want. We can have the best you know, missile defense system possible. But without the Lord, what good is it? Because he knows from his life's experience, he knows that God made it very clear. He raises up kingdoms. He lowers kingdoms. And sometimes God can raise up a small kingdom to overcome a great kingdom. Even though they may have all the military, they may be absolutely overwhelmed by that other country. I mean, God raised up America in a miraculous way. We should never have beaten the world's most powerful opponent, enemy, army at that time. But God raises up in his timing. And he says, great, when it comes to kingdoms, you can have all the labor, all the work, all the defense, but without God, what good is it? In fact, he knows this. As a Jewish leader, he knows that if we forget God, our nation will not last. And that did happen in the next generations. They didn't last as a kingdom. He knows that even if we had the best defenses, that kings could come and they could overcome them, which happened in Israel's history. Or they could be attacked by great, vast armies. Hezekiah, one of his great-great-great-grandsons on the throne, he knew that personally. They were attacked by the military might of their day. They had no chance. But God intervened, and they were able to be protected. So he's using these real-life historical situations about your home, about the kingdom that you would want to be able to protect your family. Even in that idea, you stay up late, you work long hours, you eat the bread of sacrifice. The idea is you can, you can spend buku hours, you can give up a lot of the little pleasures of life, but what good is it if you're laboring for things that don't last? So you got that new car, 
that you've always dreamed of. In a few years, it's going to rust. It's not going to be the great thing anymore. Or, or you, know, you say, I've got the dream house. In years down the road, it's going to become just like any other house. It's going to need repair. And it doesn't mean we shouldn't care about those things. It's just, are they the most important part of our life? That's what he's driving at. He's saying they won't bring lasting peace because usually the more we get, the more we want. You know, and it has to get even better. And his summary of this idea of this text is a walk with the Lord. It's presumed. It's assumed. Without the Lord, you labor in vain. The walk with the Lord, along with your labors and everything else, that's where you're going to find the peace and the satisfaction. Now, let me put it in question form. What good is it to labor hard for things, yet lose your own soul for eternity? Isn't that what Jesus said? What good is it? You gain the world, and yet without God, you lose your soul. So what good is all the toys, all the stuff, if you're in hell? What good is it? What good is it to have a beautiful house, but end up with a broken marriage? And then all of a sudden, you, you, you say, whatever happened, you never followed the counsel for, for couples. You weren't focused on what does the Bible tell me to do in this relationship. What good is it to get lots of stuff, and you provide your kids with lots of stuff, but you didn't work at what God said you need to work at to have a loving relationship with the siblings, with the kids? What good is it that you worry about your kids' futures and their careers, and you focus on that, but you forget to give them the Word of God to prepare them for when they stand before the Lord? What good is all that stuff, all that worry when they hang their head in shame because you didn't teach them? What good is it to protect your kids from monetary political dangers, educational dangers, but you don't teach them the Word of God that can deliver them from Satan and sin? And they get caught up in addiction. They get caught up in vices. What good is all that stuff. What good is it, if we could apply it to us right here, what good is it for us to go through the motions of church, but we forget God, and we don't worship Him, we don't surrender to Him, we don't say, God, speak to me, then what good is this? Of what value is it, other than you just spent your time and kept your image, but you didn't grow? And so he's, he's listing it with questions. He's saying, what, you know, the bottom line is, what good are those things? He's trying to get every one of us to say, we need the Lord. We need the Lord's help. We need his counsel. We need his direction. We need his guidance. We need to have our priorities with him. We need him to correct us at times, to make adjustments to our lives, including the area of our families. Instead of just going on at week after week in our marriage or in our parenting or brother-sister relationships, unless we go to the Lord and say, God, help me. How can I grow? What can I do better? We need the Lord's assistance to know how to communicate better, how to love better, how to forgive better, how to get along better, how to train the kids, how to respond. What are my responsibilities if we want God to bless our homes? to help us to have peace and joy, even if we don't have all the stuff. 
but still have a contented home, a godly home. And so what he does is he says in the first few verses, what good is it without God? And then in the next few verses, he's saying, if you insert God into your life, if you make him a welcomed part of your life where you are praying to him and seeking guidance and asking for growth and adjusting according to the adjustments, he says, here's what God's going to give you. Here's the blessings. He says he will give his beloved sleep. That, that idea of sleep comes right after working hard. And again, hard work isn't the problem. It's just who's guiding the work and why you're doing the work and what is your attitude in the work? What is your focus? And again, maybe he's talking personally because you remember Solomon's nickname, beloved of God, Jedediah. And he says he'll give his beloved sleep. Maybe, maybe Solomon feels this because of the pressure of all that he has to do and take care of. That he is the leader, he's the executive of a nation who's in its peak and everybody wants to attack and they want to, to take what he's got. And he's got to do trial cases and he's got to handle the finances. And maybe he feels pulled apart and he's come to the point, he says, but what good is it without me having a close walk with the Lord? That I worked so hard, I'm stretched in all these areas. But he says, if I have my walk with the Lord, the Lord's going to give me the sleep that I need. Which has the idea of refreshing the hard worker. It has the idea of the peace of spirit, the sleep. has the idea of confidence that I can rest because I'm confident I made the right decision. It has the idea of contentment with what I have, what I've done. Like the Lord, he rested after the seventh day in the idea that he was content with what had been done. And he's saying, with the Lord, you can have this type of satisfaction, this type of contentment. That's one of the blessings he says he'll give to you. Who say, I'm going to walk with the Lord. I'm going to do what Matthew 6.33 says. Seek ye... First, the what? The kingdom of God and his righteousness. And what about the stuff? All these things shall be added unto you. The stuff that you will be needing, be content with. But first and foremost, your walk with the Lord. Inviting the Lord, making him a welcomed partner in your heart and in your life. He says, okay, I'll give you sleep. But then he talks about family blessings. He says in the next couple of verses, Lo, children are a heritage of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is his reward, as arrows are in the hand of a mighty man. Think this through. Okay? When he's talking about family blessings, back in Old Testament days, children were a really valued piece of, of life, even like they are today, in the sense that people, you know, they look forward to having the children, to having grandchildren. Do you remember now when he's talking, he's talking to a society that in the Roman days, for instance, 50% of people born never made it to adulthood. They estimate that in Israel, 30% of those who were birthed in ancient Israel didn't make it beyond the second year. So when he's talking about family blessings and having multiple children that survive, this is a, this is a tremendous blessing. That God is going to give you family and grandkids. And then he says, not only that, but he's talking about, you know, like a mighty man, a warrior. The kids are like an arrow in his hands. 
Think through what he's talking about. The warrior who's going to go to battle, he has to prepare his weapons. He has to whittle them. He has to get them finely honed so that when he uses them in battle, they go straight. So he's got to put influence, pressure. He's got to sand or he's got to whittle. He's got to work on that arrow. And so he's saying then when that arrow is right, he can release it. And that arrow is going to accomplish something that is beneficial, whether provision or protection, but it can be useful. In my silliness, I think what he's driving at is this idea that the blessing he is saying to those who make God a partner in their life is that that parent who does that, he's going to have God's assistance in influencing the kids to become really productive, to be a beneficial tool, to make a difference. And so he's talking about you as a parent whittling that how do you get through to that piece of wood? And you've got to admit, parents, sometimes it's like talking to a piece of wood. And he's saying, how can you influence them and train them up in the way that they should go so that when you release them, they're going straight? God promises to bless those who make, you, make him a partner in this, that he will help them to train up the child that he will help them to bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. But that won't happen unless you make God a welcomed part of your heart, of your life, of your counsel, of your decisions. And then he talks about this idea of the kids as well, that these kids in verse 5, that they're going to stand up and they're not going to be ashamed and they'll speak with the enemies in the gates. Do you understand what he might be picturing here? He might be picturing the idea that these kids, they praise their parents. These kids, they will defend their parents. These kids, they obviously have grown into respect and they're supportive of their parents. How do we raise kids that we can get along with when they're adults? By, first of all, you making sure that you've had God a welcomed partner in your heart to guide you on how to parent, on what you're supposed to be doing, how you're supposed to be speaking and not provoking them to wrath, how you're supposed to be disciplining them and not letting them go hither and yonder or over-disciplining so that they learn to respect you and to appreciate you. For that which is the most important things in life, relationship. Not stuff, but having a relationship. And knowing that you're behind them and they're behind you. How do you develop a good, consistent testimony with your kids? God says, I'll help you. If you make me a partner, a welcomed partner in your heart, I will help you in these most important areas of building relationships, guiding and directing the family. But it comes back to you making God a welcome part of your heart. As a couple or as a single parent, you need to make God a welcome part of your heart, your life. So we have to ask some of these questions that are real, that are part of this application of the text. Have you asked Christ to be your Savior? It starts to be the welcomed forgiver of your sins. 
He has died, buried, and resurrected so that he could give you forgiveness, so that he could send his spirit to live in your heart, so you could understand the Bible clearly, so he could guide you and direct you. He could become your Abba Father. It doesn't happen until you ask Christ to become your Savior. Has that ever happened? Have you welcomed him into your life as the one and only Savior? You who are born again, are you willing to surrender to his will for your life? God, come into my life and guide me, direct me, show me, and I'll do what you want. I will treat you as a welcomed partner. I will talk to you on a daily basis. I will spend time in your word seeking out your direction and your guidance. God, when you correct me, when you chasten me, when you convict me, I will respond with joy and make the corrections that are needed. God, you're my welcomed partner. I will be content with what you have provided for me. God, I will have a spirit of trust and thanksgiving instead of resentment when you bring trials into my life. When all of a sudden there's difficulties... I won't rebel against you. I won't hate you for it. I won't resent you for it. I will rejoice that you care enough to bring these things in my life to whittle me so that I can become a straight arrow. God, I I will make you a welcome partner. I will do what you command me to do. I, I will make you a welcomed partner by coming and worshiping in a public sense to let people know and let you know that you are a welcomed partner in my life that I don't resent the idea of having to gather with other believers on a Sunday. I welcome it. I rejoice in it. And God, you've got, as a welcome partner, you have access to every area of my life. I am not hiding anything from you. I am not, I am not resent, resisting you. This is me, God. This is where I am right now. You're my welcomed partner. Is that true in your heart? And then we said, okay, this is number one, most important. You have got to have the Lord as your welcome partner if you want blessings upon your home. As the parent, as the child, as the husband, as the wife, as the grandparent, as the brother, as the sister, it all applies. That's just the same. You need to have God as a welcome partner in your heart, in your life. But the second truth I want to share with you this week and next is this. God has several rules for every family to follow if they want God's blessings on their home. This goes way beyond America or this culture or a church setting. This is going to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 2 and looking how God established society at the very beginning. Join me there, please. In Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis 2, we read the beginning of society during the week of creation, where we read in chapter 2, verse 18, these words, And the Lord God said, It is not good that a man should be alone. I will make him a what? A helper, a helpmeet for him. And out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field, every fowl. He brought them to Adam to see what he would call them, and whatsoever Adam called them, that living creature, that was the name. Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the fall of the air, to every beast of the field. But there was not found for Adam a helpmeet. 
So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. He slept. He took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And of the rib which the Lord had taken from Adam made he a woman, brought her unto Adam. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall become one flesh. They're both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. There are buku rules for homes, for families, which is the beginning of society. As the family goes, so goes the society. And so those rules are critical for us. Now, some of you may respond and say, well, wait a minute. This is just recording what happened at the very beginning. How does it apply in 2023? Let me point out something to you. That Jesus, when he, God, Jesus, when they were speaking to Adam and Eve in this garden and makes a statement, he is making principles that are limitless for all generations, all cultures, all societies. How do I know that? Well, when he's talking to Adam and Eve, he talks about leaving your what? Father and mother. How does that apply to Adam and Eve? Adam and Eve didn't have parents. Okay, but God is setting down a rule that is going to be illustrated here, but carries on for multiple generations. In fact, God had this rule repeated hundreds of years later, thousands of years later, when Jesus, in Matthew 19, makes the very same statement out of Genesis 2. He quotes it. And he's applying it to the Jewish people. At that time, and the crowd that he's applying it to is of all ages. And he's saying, this is applicable for you this day. And then God has uh, Paul write this to the Gentiles in the Ephesian church. And that's now talking to men, women, people of all ages and, and all structures within the body, which brings us to this very simple conclusion that fam, all the family rules that are in Genesis 2.24 and the surrounding texts, they apply to every culture. They apply to every time period. They apply to us. If we want God's blessings, we need to follow what God said makes up a good, solid home. And so what, do, what are some of those rules? The rules are number one. The rule number one that is so important that we need to relay to young people in this society. Marriage is a good thing. It is a good relationship. It isn't archaic. It isn't olden. It is God's design for what is best. And I remember, I've shared this with you. My, my dad's favorite line to bust on my mom was always, you know, marriage is the next best thing to being single. You want, come on. According to the Word of God, marriage is good. Do you remember now God is creating marriage here by bringing Eve and Adam together. When God created that, God is saying it's good. Now, today we don't hear that anymore. Today and the rise of social, social ideas that come from Lenin and Marxism, their whole idea, the one of the basic concepts of communism being successful, socialism, was destroy the nuclear family. Get people dependent upon the state. Let the state teach the children and be the greatest influence, not the parents. Even today, we have groups like Black Lives Matter 
who have adopted that idea and in their foundational statements, they talk about the idea that they want to disrupt the family concept. Is there any surprise why so many couples are now couples? So many in America are trying to just forgo the idea of marriage and just live in relationships? There's no need for commitment. There's no need for working at it. We can just go hither and yon. And the Bible says, now wait a minute, stop. Stop. Marriage is a good thing. And every aspect of it is good. God saw that all he had designed, he saw in chapter 1, verse 31, and it was good. Including this idea of marriage. Including bringing people together who had differences biological differences. Biological differences are good. Genders, male and female, are good. They're not a bad thing to be a woman. It's not a bad thing to be a guy. God designed them. God designed so man and woman be together and he designed differences in personalities. It's good to have some differences in our marriage relationships. The differences that were not exactly the same, but we can complement one another. And one has strengths in some areas and, and weaknesses that the other emboldens and helps. It's good to have different roles and responsibilities within marriage. And God designed it. That God designed that there's going to be a difference in the roles. Brother, we were just talking about this. How in the Trinity, they're all the same But there is a difference in order. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. And the head of Christ is God. Wait a minute, they're they're totally equal. Not in function. There was God designed within the Trinity so it would work in harmony that there was an orderliness to it. That they weren't all three battling one another, but the Son came as sent by the Father to do the Father's will. Submission isn't bad word. It's a good word in the Trinity. It's a good word in marriage. Where he says, even as the Father is the head of Christ, and even as Christ is the head of man, so man is the head of the woman. It doesn't mean she's inferior. It means an orderly system. And it was a good system. It's not a bad thing to have some one person be more in charge. So marriage is good. I know I'm never entering politics after this message. (laughs) And if I would, I would be slaughtered. And I'm going to tell you from my heart that as I was doing this, I took the garbage out the other day and I walked back in. I thought, maybe I should scale this down just a little bit because we're on live stream. It's like, no, no. The Word of God says marriage is for one man and one woman. Okay? Now, isn't it amazing how we get excited about that? But there wasn't a single amen before about welcoming God in our hearts. So I guess we got that one all covered. But I understand. We are socially reacting to this one. Okay? But let me draw two thoughts with this. God did not design polygamous marriages. That was not the intent of God. Do you find it in the Bible? Yes. Did God design it that way? No. No. In fact, if you want to go back, we did a study on this last spring. 
in a Sunday school class, spend a couple Sundays on it, you can go and get all the notes. Let me just summarize it real quickly. That with that idea, that polygamy came out of societies that had a very low view of ladies. Ladies were to serve men. Ladies were to be sexual, um, satisfying creatures for men's appetites, period. And so it, it evolved out of a low concept for ladies. God never has a low concept of ladies. God never did, okay? God wanted ladies to be taken care of. He wanted them to manage the households. He gave them authority. He gave them somebody to protect them and to love them. He took uh, Eve from the rib, not from the sole of the feet to be trod upon, but close to his heart. So you have the concept of this low view of women. That is not from the Bible. That is from a sinful culture. And then you start thinking this through. Even though it's allowed, does that mean God promoted it? No, no. Did God stomp on and crush every single instance where there was paganism? No. At times he was merciful, trying to help the people to grow out of it. In the same way here, God never promoted this. God never promoted polygamy. He did command that the kings of Israel only have the one wife. So if it's good for the leaders, it's good for everybody else. He did as well record for us that every account where there's polygamous relationships, every account has dysfunctional families. Every account in scriptures. You know, that there's that, that difficulty. That one man, one woman concept is clearly New Testament. In Ephesians, where he talks about husbands and wives repeatedly, your wife, they're you know, singular, husband and wife, not wives with one husband or multiple husbands with one wife. It's a singular relationship. All the way through, the pronouns are very clear. It does the same thing when he says in 1 Corinthians, let every wife have her own husband, every husband his own wife. Singular. In fact, leadership in the church where there was a society where polygamy was, he made it very clear, no, no polygamists are in any kind of leadership form in the church. That's one clear application as well as possible others. So we know that polygamy was not allowed. Here we go. Okay. God did not design marriage to be a homosexual relationship at all. At all. It's very clear in scriptures that God does not approve of homosexuality relationships or marriages. He just never did. Hasn't. If you want the more complete study, again, I give you the times and the dates where we spent several different Sundays. There's another one in there uh, that's in addition to that Sunday school that we talked about this at length. Let me summarize what we talked about last spring. Last spring when we talked about, we pointed out that the Scriptures very clearly uses wording that says when talking about homosexuality that it's abnormal. It is not approved. Friend, if we want to go by the science, okay, which, don't you get tired of hearing this? We'll go by the science unless we don't want to go by the science. Okay. Let's go by the science. It is not natural in homosexuality, homosexual relationships. There is no propagation possible. 
and I know that it's becoming popular, the idea that well, science is bringing us to a point that men will be able to birth, they haven't found it, it won't happen. God's design is not for men to be with men and propagate planet Earth. It won't happen, and with ladies, with ladies. It is an aberration from what God designed. The scriptures, when we read the scriptures, they are so clear. Notice the terminology in this discussion. He gave them to vile affections. They changed their natural use of the woman into into that which is against nature. And likewise, men leaving the natural use of woman, burning their lust one to another, working that which is shameful. God's not approving this. God's not, not putting and saying, do whatever you want. Sodom and Gomorrah, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh. Perversions were set forth in as, a, as an example of what can happen for perversion. We read further in scriptures, you shall not lie with a man, with man like woman. It's an abomination. We read that they were told to lie with mankind as he lies with a woman. It's an abomination. Sodom and Gomorrah, again, turned into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an example unto those that would live in such an ungodly state. We read in scriptures, knowing that the law was not made for righteous man, but for the lawless, the disobedient, the ungodly, sinners, the unholy, the profane, murderers, slayers, whoremongers. He is just giving all different types of terms and descriptions of who qualifies as being involved in sinful, ungodly acts. Manslayers, whoremongers, from them that defile themselves with another man, for slave traders, for liars, and whatever else is contrary. That is not a positive statement about homosexuality, homosexual relationships. The unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And now he lists neither fornicators, idolaters, effeminate, abusers of themselves with mankind, not thieves, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. They're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. He's very clear in this matter. This is not appropriate, though in our country they say it is. It is not per the scriptures. And yet, some will say, wait a minute. Sex is personal. It's very private. God doesn't care as long as we love each other. That's that's just not true. That's not true. Young person, you're hearing this from school or other environments. That's not true. Hear what the Word of the Lord says. The Word of the Lord says, It is good for a man not to intimately touch a woman. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, God is concerned about your sexual activities. He puts restrictions on them. Let the man, every man, have his own wife and every woman her own husband. He goes on, the marriage is honorable in all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. Physical relationships outside the marriage bed, it's whoremongering and adultery, and God will judge it. It may be private, but God sees it. God condemns it. Fornication, uncleanness, and covetousness, don't even let it be named amongst you. Don't don't let it even be tolerated amongst you who are believers. He goes on, he says, this is the will of God. You want to know the will of God for your life? This is one of the clear ones that are stated. Even your holy living. 
that you abstain from any type of sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control your own body in holiness and honor in the passion of lust. God is concerned about your physical relationships. As married couples, he's concerned of those of you outside of married, being married. He's concerned, teens, about how you react physically, sexually. And God puts standards, there's rules. I'll talk more about that next week. But the point is, God is not neutral about homosexuality. God is not positive about it. God clearly says it's wrong. It's condemned. But I, I, here's where my heart gets burdened from, from our perspective. I want to give the message out that says, God doesn't hate you. God died for you. If you're involved in that type of behavior... If you have had that type of relationship, it's called gay, but you aren't going to find real joy there. Real joy and peace only comes through Jesus Christ and being forgiven by him. And if you have ever been involved in that type of activity or are involved in that, let me give you the hope that the Bible gives you. You can have forgiveness through Jesus Christ. This is not the unpardonable sin Jesus loves you, died for you, took that sin to the cross like he did any other sin, and he paid the penalty to forgive you of it and to give you the ability to have victory over it. You are not doomed and damned forever. You have hope in Jesus Christ. How do I know that? The unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And he goes on, he lists all those things. The next verse says, And such were some of you. Some of the people in the church of Corinth had this in their background. They had this junk in their background, but they were forgiven. They were washed. They were sanctified. They were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by his Holy Spirit. So the message of hope that we want to broadcast out of here is this. If anybody has been involved in polygamy, immorality, homosexuality, Jesus Christ forgives those sins. And if you ask Christ to be your Savior, and you ask Christ to forgive you, come and join us as a body of believers that once you're born again, we will help you to grow in faith. So we have these rules. These rules that are very clear. We have other rules that go like this. It's a good thing. Marriage is for one man and one woman. This rule, those seeking a good marriage spouse ought to let God be a part of the search. What we mean by that is this. God is the one who brought Adam and Eve together. God, God worked in that whole miracle, but he knew that Adam needed a companion. God was caring for that. And so God responded and brought Eve now, the Word of God talks that God doesn't create somebody special for you. But can God still bring people together? We have in the Word of God the idea that people go searching. And it's not a bad thing to be searching, looking around for a partner, an eventual partner. And it says that a good partner, a good wife, is a gift from the Lord. Let's put it together. Let's put these thoughts together. God recognizes that most of us here were, before we were married, those of you who, who aren't married at this point, those of you who 
um, I have yet to be married. God recognizes that there are going to be searches being made. Dating is going to happen. Can God be a partner in this dating process so you get a good partner? Not only can God, but you ought to let God be a partner in your search. How do you do that? I've got several different P's to talk about. Praying, the idea of, of you know, being picky, okay, biblically, adopting God's standards. It'll take me another whole hour to get to those. So, Father, we come before you right now. And we are talking about a very important topic. It's our homes. It's our families. It's our kids. It's their sexuality. It's their future. God, I pray, give us wisdom. Give us attentiveness to your word, to your ways, to the suggestions, the counsel, the advice you give, and help us to follow it. Please, God, please help me and everyone here to make you a welcomed partner in our own lives, how it affects our families, our future. Help us to do what is right by following your rules, your ways. Give us wisdom to combat that which we're going to get targeted for, we're going to get bombarded about. Give us wisdom. Give us the boldness to stand true to your word in a society that would attack the morality of Scripture. Help us, by example, to portray the positiveness of home and family. Help us to be a good example to our kids, our grandkids. Help us to be a good example to those that we live next to, that they would want what we have as far as Christian homes. For those who may be here, I pray that if there's any who are not born again, that before they leave this building, they would call upon Christ to be their Savior. I pray this in Christ's name.